I'm going to talk a bit about a study um, that, as you'll see, was funded by the Department for Education. My purpose today is to say a bit about the study, um, an outline of the, the aims, the methods, and some key findings. I'm not going to go into lots of detail of all the findings, there were quite a lot, um, but the report is available, and if people do have questions for me, I've actually brought a copy of the report so I can remind myself of what some of the findings were. Um, as we finish this, working on this, probably 18 months ago now, um, and I've been doing other things since, so I've had to remind myself to go back to this. Um, but then I want to highlight what I think were some of the issues for us in doing um, doing the research. So just to um, say a little bit about the study. So it was commissioned um, under a competitive tendering process in 2012 and conducted by TNS BMRB, who are a, a, a private um, research company um, that are well set up to do things like fairly large-scale telephone surveys and things like that, and who we've worked with before and IPSI, the Institute of Policy Studies in Education at London Met, which is um, my own research institute. Um, and there's the project team um, on the screen, so obviously um, I need to acknowledge all their contributions in um, conducting the research and in informing the presentation I'm doing today. Um, the final project report was um, published just over a year ago and is, is on the DfE website. Um, the two teams from BMLB and IPSI have worked collaboratively throughout the project, so we devised the, the research together, we wrote the, the research design together, we collaborated on the production of research instruments and so on, um, but BMLB took responsibility for the quantitative um, aspect of the research for survey work, and IPSI took responsibility for qualitative case studies, and then we kind of pulled all that together at the end. So just on to the aims of the study. Now, interestingly, following Colin's presentation um, and the emphasis on the brightest, you'll see that the concern in this study was to investigate the strategies that colleges and schools use to support high-achieving, disadvantaged pupils to pursue higher education. And in particular... Russell Group University. So that was the agenda that we were set um, by the DfE and it's very much part of that social mobility, fair access agenda, um, moving away from the emphasis on equity, equality, the, the, the kind of traditional widening participation agenda um, that, for example, um, the post-92s in, in Colin's work were um, traditionally much more focused on. So we were looking um, to provide evidence on the extent to which these students um, were already supported in schools and colleges and to identify best practice from that. What could we learn from it? And the third aim was to assess the, the extent to which the pupil premium is being used by schools and colleges um, to support these activities. Now this aim actually became less important to the DfE, partly because they'd commissioned other research specifically looking at pupil premium. Um, at the time that we were doing this study, pupil premium was still relatively new and also schools had just been told that they were going to be held accountable and monitored by the DfE for how they were spending it, whereas they hadn't previously. So there was a whole other kind of political agenda that 
kind of impacted on the research and as I say um, other research was being commissioned by the DfE. We did ask some questions about pupil premium but it was less of a focus of our study. So what did we do? Um, well initially there was a telephone survey the aim was to get 400 schools and a representative sample from across the country we ended up with 380 schools um, in terms of good, good data responses and a boost sample of those known to send high proportions of disadvantaged students to higher education we had 79 schools in that boost sample who responded um, so in total there were 459 schools um, who responded to the telephone survey and there was also we aimed for 100 FE or sixth form colleges we got 99 in the end um, which wasn't bad going um, the survey of both of these was a 20-25 minute telephone call with a senior member of staff um, at each institution who was able to provide an overview of the strategies used to raise aspirations to higher education. So it was mainly people like head teachers, principals, heads of sixth form, deputy heads, sometimes careers officers. Some schools have people like heads of aspiration raising or widening participation officer or, or whatever. So it was we identified the person really by initial letter to the school and then follow-up phone calls and this was um, BMLB's contribution, it wasn't stuff that Ipsy did, um, to identify the best person to talk to. And in advance of the phone call, um, those participants were actually sent a kind of performer with the questions we were going to be asking so that they could identify and gather the information in advance. Um, so hopefully we got the best information that we could from um, each of those institutions and that was then followed up by case studies we aimed for 10 case studies um, eight schools and two colleges um, and we actually added the pilot school which we'd used to test out the research instruments for the case studies because nothing really changed we added that data in so we really ended up with 11 case studies in total the case studies were selected um, to what we thought would in some way exemplify best practice, but that was from a whole mix of criteria, ranging from their the numbers of high-achieving, disadvantaged young people they sent to higher education, but in the case study schools, that ranged from one school in the 0-5% group and another one in the 46-50% to group. So a vast range across that but also in terms of their responses to the survey, the kinds of things that they said they did, um, the number of activities they, um, they ran and, and so on. Um, so we tried to get a diverse sample geographically in terms of urban, rural and, and so on. In those case studies, um, the research um, researcher visited for a day, basically spent a day in the institution, <coughs> interviewed two or three members of staff, conducted two focus groups with students, all of whom we asked for students, ideally high-achieving disadvantaged students, but we particularly wanted students who'd experienced some of the strategies and activities that um, schools and colleges told us that they um, had offered. Um, we ended up with 31 staff interviews and 119 students across the case studies. Um, so 
we were keen to see what schools and colleges saw as the main barriers and challenges to raising aspirations as well as what they did um, and what they felt was effective um, so that we could identify good practice to be shared. So some of the findings, well what was really heartening was a really strong commitment to encouraging students to apply to higher education. So this was from the survey. So it was one of the highest priorities that schools and colleges identified. And almost all undertook some aspiration raising work. 98% of colleges said they did so and 97% of schools. It was slightly less for 11 to 16 schools um, who said they focused more on raising <coughs> attainment, for example, rather than um, access to HE specifically. <coughs> it was also clear that staff did talk to students about different types of universities. Um, encouraging applications to Russell Group did appear to be widespread from responses to the, the survey. But there was almost unanimous agreement that it was more important to think about all the opportunities available to students and not only to focus on higher education. That was a very clear message that came through the survey and the, um, the case studies. Now in the case studies we found similar high levels of staff commitment to raising aspirations, perhaps not surprising given our selection of ones that we thought were probably doing a reasonable job. And particularly this, this last emphasis, really, it was very much about doing what we think is right for the students and a really strong commitment to that. Now, these findings in some ways were in sharp contrast to some of the assumptions made by politicians, amongst others, reported in the media that teachers and schools are to blame for students not considering higher education and particularly not considering Russell Group. So there's just a couple of examples of some of the press reports. Um, teachers to blame for lack of ambition among pupils. Teachers lack Oxbridge ambition. Um, and there was quite a strong um, discourse around this circulating in the run-up to and during the research that we conducted. And it was also evident in the steering group. It was actually voiced in the steering group that we don't think, you know, teachers probably aren't doing enough, are they? And, and so on. Now, of course, the difference between what we found, which was this very high commitment, um, and these kind of um, assumptions could be a methodological issue. Um, the participants in the telephone survey, usually senior members of staff, may have just been keen to say that, yes, of course we're doing all this, um, and create a good impression. Um, they may also have been citing policy in their institution when actually very different things went on in practice. Um, and of course we had no way of knowing that. We did assure all participants of <coughs> confidentiality and anonymity and that we were completely independent of the DfE. So we did try to um, give a very clear impression that people could tell us what was actually going on um, and not what they thought we wanted to hear. <coughs> And in the case studies, when we actually spoke to staff and students, we did find a similar account. So we do think we've probably got a reasonable account um, of 
what schools are trying to do. There were some differences in responses. So those schools without a sixth form, less likely to carry out aspiration raising work slightly. Although when they did do such work, they were more likely to indicate that they specifically focused on high achieving disadvantaged students. <coughs> in terms of geographical issues, there was a London effect, very, very clearly came out. London schools were very clearly prioritising this to a very great extent. They, were doing, they seemed to be doing far more. Um, in the end, in the case studies, we had three London case studies, um, precisely because it seemed like these schools were the ones that were doing a lot. Um, now, of course, we know that levels of attainment have gone up in London more than in other parts of the country. Um, some people have talked about the effect of the London Challenge. Um, and the City Challenge programme, and in fact one of my colleagues at Ipsy, um, Dr. Professor Marion Hutchins, did some research looking at the impact of, of London Challenge and City Challenge. <coughs> Others have said it's more to do with higher numbers of black minority ethnic students, although actually white working class students are doing better as well. Um, so quite what that's about we're not sure. But in the case studies, it became apparent that the London schools really seemed to benefit from being in the, in the capital city, having access not only to a whole number of neighbouring universities. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, you know, post very different kinds of universities, including Russell Group institutions, but also blue chip, chip companies, you know, the headquarters of major companies, and they often had relationships and partnerships with those companies, invited their um, members of staff in to talk to students, to inspire them to think, well, if I want a job like that in the city, I need to go to university, and so on. So there was a lot of that kind of work in the, in the London schools. Of course, there were also differences within the case studies, and we know from talking to students that, um, you know, while some students felt the really benefited from lots of activities other students were saying well I haven't had very much um, as well as um, between institutions so these were kind of um, strategies and activities that were talked about I'm just going to let you read rather than try and read things out so that my throat recovers but if anyone does need me to read out, do tell me. So that's just a snapshot of, of some of the things that were very frequently reported in response to the survey. The survey also shows that those schools that sent a high proportion of high-achieving disadvantaged students to higher education tended to report slightly more activities overall. It was like they were offering more. They were marginally more likely to use visits um, and residential trips to higher education institutions than others and visits were important and I'll come back to that and they were more likely to have some, some form of mentoring or student ambassador system in place than schools in general in terms of the case studies we kind of decided that we could group the activities into three different headings the first one was about providing students with information, advice and guidance about HE. So it was the information given. And actually students and parents 
which were often important, <coughs> and particularly about finance, which was a key issue. Secondly, it was supporting students in their aspirations, whether it be one-to-one -one careers advice, tutorial support, helping students to actually write an um, a UCAS application or research their particular um, course in different universities and so on. So it was the more support aspect. And the third area was providing students with actual experiences of higher education, going to higher education institutions on visits, residential trips and so on. And that was particularly important, it seemed. What was clear was that it wasn't a magic formula. You know, looking at these, the survey, all the case studies, we couldn't <coughs> simply come out and say, um, yes, this is the answer. Um, but there were some things that seemed to be making a difference. Now, a kind of warning about this initially. What we did discover from the case studies is that there was relatively little formal and systematic evaluation of activities going on. Um, in the survey, we asked institutions about the extent of their monitoring applications, destinations, and so on. There was plenty of monitoring of applications, um, but less um, actual evaluation of, of activities and what a difference they might have made. Um, so basically, evaluation was undeveloped. Um, most is anecdotal, unsystematic. It was based on teachers saying things like, well, I just noticed the change in students over time. Or, well, I know my students, you know, these have all done that activity and then they applied here and, and so on. In some cases, it was based on student feedback after an event. So some kind of written feedback or a class discussion or whatever. So we're basing this assessment on what students and staff told us. But because we spoke to students as well, we didn't only get the staff perspective. And there was actually a lot of agreement between the two. So where staff were giving us their sense of what they thought was going on, that was often re reaffirmed by um, the students who we spoke to. So one thing that, that stood out as important was the whole <coughs> school-college culture of aspiration. Um, and this was where it just infused everything they did. It was in assemblies, it was reflected in posters and, and um, things on the walls, on the notice boards. It was in tutorials, it was a range of activities and, and so on. And associated with that, having a structured programme of activities relating to higher education. Where activities were ad hoc, they seemed to be less effective. Um, it seemed that, and you know, we had students were saying, well, you know, yeah, I did have that, but I don't know whether I'm going to get anything more, and they just seemed to have been left and felt a bit left around it. Um, but where there was a very organised, systematic, varied programme, um, that seemed to be really highly valued by staff, but also by students as well. Advice on subject choice. Um, was, was very common and was appreciated by students as well as, as um, by staff and of course for Russell Group universities particularly important often. <coughs> now addressing concerns about finance, finance was a big issue and I will come to that in terms of the, the challenges. Um, it was seen as one of the main challenges to raising aspirations um, and so um, 
a number of the institutions said that they actually put on sessions, not only for students but for parents too, um, in relation to this. Um, and they did seem to be effective. They did seem to reassure the students and staff often felt they'd made a real difference. Um, nevertheless, finance was still a big issue for students. Um, <coughs> so, yes, it reassured, but there were still lots of worries about finance um, that we picked up. I mean, we had one year 11 boy saying, I know if I go to university I'm going to be in debt for years, so it's kind of worrying and off-putting. And another one saying, going to university, I'm not sure if it's worth it. So there were ongoing concerns about finance, um, but these sessions seem to help. And for most of the students in the case studies that we spoke to, including students from economically disadvantaged families where they were under real you know, economic pressure to kind of get jobs or, or whatever, the financial worries weren't enough to put them off going to higher education. So it was really interesting that although they were talking about, you know, I don't know how I'm going to afford to live, you know, forget about the fees and the debt, but how do I survive and how do I live and, and things like that, they still seemed to want to go. And it, it felt like the kinds of activities that these schools and colleges had put on had inspired a real kind of passion and desire in students to want to go, irrespective of the financial concerns. And of course, we know from what's happened around applications that the finance doesn't seem to um, ultimately um, have seriously put off students. Of course, there's lots of reasons about, you know, lots of concerns about, well, what are the alternatives anyway that are open to them? Um, but certainly we found students um, that we spoke to very keen to go, despite their very serious worries about finance. Specialist staff with knowledge and responsibilities for careers, entry to higher education and so on, was something that was stressed by the staff um, more than the students, but where there were specialist staff in place, it was very, very obvious that the students really valued that. Um, and I can think of one person who was a careers officer, who had been the, high, uh, the AIM hire kind of coordinator, and who had a vast amount of knowledge, enthusiasm um, and passion around what they did. I mean, it just infused the atmosphere in the room um, when I was talking to her, and it's clear that the students I spoke to um, just felt that, that that was really important because she could answer their questions. She gave them really kind of solid advice and, and so on. Visiting speakers and alumni were also appreciated and valued, but actually not as highly as going to the universities themselves. Personalised one-to-one um, support and mentoring, also valued as part of the package. Um, but in many ways, the bee's knees was the university visits, was actually getting experience of higher education. They gave an opportunity for students who had never been near a university and didn't know what one looked like to actually go visit, see what it's like, sit in a lecture... Um, see what the student's accommodation was like, talk to students, find out about university life, and so on. Um, the staff thought they were really effective, and the students raved about them, and what a difference they felt it had made to them. Um, in particular, subject-specific visits, rather than just going for a general open day. So where students were going in relation to a course that they wanted to do, um, that was what was really important. 
And just to give you an example, I will give you just a few bits of, of data. Um, one of the case study colleges, the careers officer, talked about how she had to almost force reluctant students onto the bus for a university visit. And the policy in this college was that every level three student should have one university visit a year. Um, it wasn't completely extended across the whole college, so there were clearly different small subject areas and departments, but the careers officer was trying to get that in place for everyone. Um, and the careers officer kind of worked with the universities to try and get them to fund the bus so that there wasn't a financial issue. So basically she took the whole class and made it a compulsory part of the, of the class with some reluctant students. But anyway, she got them on the bus and this is what she said. we spoke to um, students at this college um, and it was very clear that some of them had arrived on their year three course and it got a bit taken aback by within the first week being told the careers officer was coming to talk to them about higher education you know they got a two-year course to go um, and they'd never thought of higher education they never imagined going to university and by the time we spoke to them they were all determined they were going one way or another um, and it was a clearly a very effective, integrated, whole kind of um, college programme. But it, wasn't, it was a mixture of things that impacted on the students. That was so clear. Again, the visit wasn't the magic bullet. You know, it was often personal, family, um, educational history, things that had happened in their school and their college, a whole mixture of things that came together um, that enabled them to, to make a decision to go to higher education at the time. Now, the study was meant to be focusing on activities for high-achieving, disadvantaged students. And we, there were issues around <coughs> this. Um, so we asked in the survey whether any of the activities that they offered were specifically aimed at high-achieving, disadvantaged pupils or students. And our findings led to a report in the press that I actually didn't see um, at the time it came out. I only found this quite a bit later. But the Telegraph reported, um, saying that top universities such as Oxford and Cambridge are still seen by poor pupils as posh and all top hats and stuff, research finds, as a new government programme is launched to encourage more bright children to, to apply. Now, the quotes there are directly from our data. Yes, we had groups of students talking about posh universities. Um, in some cases, not... Um, such views weren't mitigated by visits to the university where students came back saying, no, I knew it, they are all posh. Um, or in other cases, by someone from the university coming to speak to the students with the students saying, yeah, she's posh or he's posh or, or whatever. So the, this was clearly an issue and the, the Telegraph faithfully reported that. But then the next line under the, um, the picture there was this. Now this is slightly different because this is saying that schools are failing, that they're not doing what they should be doing, which of course was one of the underpinning kind of discourses that was around in the run-up to and during this research. Let's blame the teachers, blame the schools. Um, 
And this implies that it's the teachers saying they're full of posh students, which actually doesn't fit with um, what um, our data found. Now, the article did correctly report some of the data. So we found that 92% of 11 to 18 schools and 82% of colleges stated that they encouraged applications to Russell Group universities. That's a fairly good... And this was specifically Russell Group. I mean, we also asked questions about leading and selective universities, which I think was the, the DfE preferred term for a broader group of universities. But we asked about the Russell Group specifically because that was um, one of the aims of the study. Um, so there were more that said they encouraged applications to leading and selective. This was just for Russell Group. Um, so not bad at all. However, only 28% of 11 to 18 schools and 29% of colleges did the same amongst high-achieving disadvantaged students. So a smaller proportion saying that they did so for high-achieving disadvantaged students. So this is clearly what has informed that Telegraph article, that schools aren't doing enough. A bit over a quarter are saying they're doing so. But actually, the report needs reading in rather more detail to get to the issues around this. Um, and there are a number of issues. One of them is defining disadvantage and what was meant by disadvantage. And I think this is a real issue. And I know Colin touched on the, you know, is it lower socioeconomic group? Is it postcode data? And so on. Now, the DfE's kind of preferred term, um, or preferred definition at the time, was eligibility for free school meals. Um, but what we did was we asked schools and colleges themselves how they define disadvantage in their setting. Oh, yes, sorry, the... Um, 11 to 16 schools, it was only 14% who focused on high-achieving, disadvantaged students going to the Russell Group. <coughs> so this was um, definitions of, of disadvantage, of what they actually um, used. Now you see the on the left, um, the vast majority of the schools use the um, FSM data, the free school meals data. Can people see that? clearly. Are you struggling to read it? Yes. Okay, so the, the top line is 11 to 16 schools, the yellow line 11 to 18 schools and the bottom line is colleges and on the left hand column we have FSM eligible, those eligible for free school meals and you see that amongst the schools that's over 70% use that category. For colleges it's only 5%. They often don't have that data, um, and it wasn't what they tended to use. The next one is lower socioeconomic backgrounds. You see more colleges use that than schools, but still a fifth of the 11 to 16 schools and more of the 11 to 18 schools say they use that. The next one is looked after children. The next one is special educational needs. The next one is postcode. Then English as an additional language and eligibility for the education maintenance allowance when it existed. Um, so, and those were responses, I think, with um, over 
of, of schools responding to those. So that that's why they were included in here, those particular items. Um, but you can see how varied it was. Colleges particularly rather different and relying much more on um, postcode data. Um, and again, this is often to do with where you know funding sources and um, reporting requirements as to what schools and colleges actually used. We did have others that were less than 10%, and they were things like home carers, ethnic minorities, first generation to university, armed services, military families, refugees, travellers, new arrivals within the UK, and single parent families. So a whole range of other things to identify disadvantage. Now, unless we'd stated elsewhere in the report, the survey questions relating to aspiration-raising activities among high-achieving disadvantaged students focused on however the school or college decided to use that term, to define that term. So inevitably, the data around disadvantage is muddy. Yeah, it's not, it's not clear-cut. Um, I mean, the case study data found a similar kind of very mixed picture um, in the case studies, more of the staff talked about first generation in their family to enter a higher education. And that seemed to be selected as a kind of non-stigmatising um, definition um, and way of categorising students. Although students didn't, schools and colleges didn't tend to use that data in any systematic way. It was what teachers um, kind of tended to, to refer to. And what was clear is that staff often made qualitative judgments um, on a case-by-case basis. Um, so it's really clear that understanding disadvantage was qualitative and it tended to be multiple, you know, a whole range of things um, that were taken into consideration. What was also clear is that schools with a high proportion of students with free school meals and the FE colleges tended to regard the vast majority of their students as disadvantaged in some way or another. And if you think about all the categories, that's perhaps no surprise. And so actually, they didn't distinguish by disadvantage. That wasn't how they organised their activities, because they just thought, all our students are disadvantaged, we have to offer this to all of them. Or we identify our target activities on other criteria, like levels of attainment, for example. Um, so... As we state in the report, there were limitations to the quantitative analysis. So if whoever wrote the Telegraph article had read a bit further, they'd have seen that that data was actually problematic. And given that 80% of all schools and colleges surveyed indicated that they carried out at least some aspiration-raising work at a whole school or college level, inevitably high-achieving disadvantaged students were going to be picked up in that. And for the case studies, while attainment was often used to target particular activities, so there were... You know, I can think of one or two schools where they had a, um, a, a kind of Russell Group group of students. So some students were on the Russell Group track, some were on the <coughs> Oxbridge track. 
some were on another university track and so on and they'd have different activities according to those and attainment was the main criteria to allocate students <coughs> in practice they were often fairly flexible around um, those things precisely because they were concerned about the equality implications they were concerned about who who would be excluded and this was one <coughs> head of aspiration raising at one of the schools This was actually about a visit to an Oxbridge college. Um, in other cases where there wasn't this flexibility, it was very clear, and I can think of another case study, where the students who got to visit an Oxbridge college were only on GCSE scores, um, and it was a limited number of students, and it was almost entirely white middle-class students um, who did that. So there was some flexibility around this. Okay, so there's, there's another kind of methodological issue I just want to mention, <coughs> and that relates to responses to questions around challenges um, to raising aspirations. And survey respondents were given a list of possible challenges which may discourage students, make it hard for the colleges and schools to raise their aspirations. And they were asked to say how much of a challenge it was on a scale of one to five. And um, this was the result. So the yellow, not a challenge, the red, a challenge. The top one is cost, is finance. And you see 72% felt that was the major challenge, way above um, anything else. Um, what I want to draw attention to particularly is this third one which was lack of parental encouragement to apply. Now, this was a preset category, so people respond to preset categories, and over a quarter um, saw this as a serious challenge. Um, when asked specifically about um, challenges in relation to high-achieving disadvantaged students, we also had lack of parental in interest or engagement as a significant factor too. Now there's a real danger here that this research colludes with kind of dominant policy and media discourses that tend to blame working class families and students and communities. And we've had the, you know, the feckless parents type argument. Or the students themselves. And this chair of House of Commons Education Select Committee in last summer um, launching the report on underachievement in education by white working class children. But what we found in the case studies was actually a different discourse. So here we have, you know, it's, it's their poor attitudes to work, it's the lack of work ethic, it's weak parenting type of argument. <coughs> in the case studies, we only actually found one member of staff who really colluded with this discourse and blaming non-working parents who didn't support their um, 
children um, lacked motivation and interest and so on. There were certainly members of staff who talked about um, parents not having the knowledge about higher education but they saw that as well they haven't been to higher education they have no experience so they couldn't be expected to have the knowledge about it and obviously that's where we need to step in and provide that knowledge but it wasn't a kind of blaming the families and in no focus group did students claim that their parents or family were a barrier and in fact often quite the opposite <coughs> so just a couple of examples of data And there's another one. And there were quite a few more examples like this where actually students were saying, no, I want to go anyway. And often their parents being very supportive of that, even if they hadn't been themselves and didn't have that knowledge. And in fact, there was a member of staff in one of the schools who said, actually, the parents who haven't been are often keener than those who have. Um, to really ensure that their students go. Um, rather different story. There was one girl in a year 11 focus group in the, the northwest um, who was excited um, about and determined to go to university despite her mum trying to persuade her to get a proper job and not go. And this is what she said. The student. So I think this highlights the importance of not making assumptions about parental or student ambitions and aspirations. There was clearly an issue that socio and cultural and economic issues impact um, and for example not wanting to move away from home was one of the things that was talked about by both staff and students um, as a particular issue. But it's about how we interpret the data. And one of the danger with preset categories in surveys which talk about lack of parental um, interest and so on is that that can lead into these kind of policy and media discourses um, <coughs> which do blame the communities rather than locate issues of inequality and disadvantage within structural socio-economic um, conditions and so on. Finally, one more issue very quickly um, is the assumption that um, disadvantaged young people lack aspirations. Now, throughout this whole thing, I've talked about raising aspirations. That was what we were commissioned to do. That was the research that we bid for, and that was what um, the language of, of the study was all about. And the steering group, the DFE, was very much about that. It was something that we had problems with right from the beginning, and I had to bite my tongue frequently when talking about raising aspirations, because it's certainly not my experience that um, young people tend to lack aspiration. And there's now plenty of research showing that that isn't the case. Um, that there may be an expectation gap, but not an aspiration gap. That young people have high aspirations, they may doubt they'll ever actually get there, um, but that's a rather different issue. Um, and of course, the, you know, the fact that we use this, this language and that asked questions around this language, using this language, meant that we were framing responses and also in danger of contributing to that particular discourse. Um, so that was something that we were very conscious of. So just to finish with what I think some key issues, um, and thinking about some of the methodological things particularly. 
I think there were definite benefits in a mixed method study. We did get the breadth and depth that, of course, such studies always claim. We could see large patterns, but we were able to unpick some of the detail and understand the nuance much more from the case studies. There were some limitations to both, of course, in terms of the survey, who we interviewed, and what we could glean from talking to one person in an institution. Issue with preset responses as well. For the case studies, we only had a day at each institution. We also collected data and documentary evidence too. Um, but it would have been nice to have got much more in-depth, especially with large institutions where we knew there was likely to be considerable variety across the institution. The evidence-based monitoring and evaluation. As I've said, there was very little actual evaluation going on in schools. Most of it was anecdotal and was based on professional knowledge. There was evidence that schools were beginning to monitor and wanted to start, beginning to evaluate and wanted to start doing that, but it was certainly undeveloped. But what was also clear was that staff did have professional knowledge that they were basing this on. They did have their experience, and it's important not to reject that or dismiss that as only anecdotal, because often it was based on you know, fairly extensive professional experience over a period of time. And certainly from our evidence, talking to the students, it was supported by what the students said. So we weren't just getting the staff view and the students coming up with a very different picture. Um, a clear danger, of course, is if staff leave, that knowledge base goes. And obviously, um, more systematic um, evaluation, in addition to that professional knowledge and the anecdotal knowledge, would make a better case and better inform um, the, the plans for the schools and colleges um, and their ongoing activities. There were issues of definition and conceptualisation, as I've talked about, in relation to disadvantage. Um, and we can't simply assume that there's little work going on with high-achieving disadvantaged students in the way that the, the Telegraph article um, implied. The underpinning assumptions, so the uh, raising application aspirations um, that I've mentioned. Also that it's all about getting working-class kids to Russell Group institutions and that Russell Group are the best. And again, there was lots of that kind of discourse on the steering group, um, informing certainly in policy um, but not only did we have problems with that definition so did um, many of our respondents students and staff in schools as well so that discourse is challenged and basically there's no simple answer it's complex there's no magic solution um, and it was so evident that a whole mix of things impacted on students but those institutions that did offer a well-thought-out programme of activities that was well-organised, that included some universal for everyone, which picked up those who might not think they wanted to go and provided some level of equality, um, whilst also some targeting to meet specific needs, and that included a whole institution culture um, as well, um, were the ones that really seemed to um, exemplify best practice. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you.